About 10 years ago, Nancy and I went tenting. And about 10 years ago, Nancy and I vowed to make tenting against our religion. If there is one thing I could do to wreck a day, a Mother's Day for Nancy, it would be to say, let's go camping. And none of our experiences have ever been successful, and none of them have ever been enjoyable. The last time, that time 10 years ago, uh, the ground was damp, and so I figured, and when you think about this, it seems very logical. I figured the ground's damp. What we should do is take the tarp and put it on the ground and put the tent on top of the tarp. That way, you won't be sleeping on a wet ground. Well, that night it rained, and it rained hard, and it hailed, and guess what that tarp ended up doing? Collecting all of the water and bringing it together into a pool right where Nancy and I slept. Our tent was leaking, we were swimming in water, our sleeping bag was wet, our pillow was wet. I got so frustrated that about one in the morning, I got out of the tent, made sure Nancy got out of the tent, got everything out of our tent. I grabbed our tent and pulled it down, wrapped it into a big ball and threw it into the closest dumpster. And then we found a hotel that we spent the rest of the night in. That was the last time we have ever gone tenting, and we will never go tenting again. When it comes to tenting, I am glad that God is much better at tenting than I am. In fact, God is so good at tenting that through it, he rescued the world. John 1.14, which we looked at just the first four words last week, and we are going to spend this week looking at the rest of it, goes, the word became human, became flesh, and made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Last week we talked about what it means that the word became flesh, or in other words, human, that flesh and human are the same definition. Jesus, as we saw last week, became fully human. He really was a human being in the full sense of being a human being. But this week, we are going to look at what the rest of that verse says, where it goes on and talks about how the word that became human made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. John the Apostle, who wrote this gospel, and John the Baptist have identified this word as none other than Jesus Christ. And John the Apostle writes that Jesus became human. He became flesh and dwelt among us. Now, at one level, we can all understand this. At one level, this is something that every single one of us can pick up. He became human and he dwelt among us, meaning that he lived among us. He moved into our cul-de-sac. He made his home among us. Or, in more contemporary language, he moved into the neighborhood. In fact, one translation of the Bible, the message, translates it that way. The word became flesh and blood and moved into the neighborhood. 
He became personal. And this is certainly true. God came in such a way that we could know him. The distant God came in such a way that we could know him personally. Jesus brought God close to us so that we could know him by the means of our world. This is a profound thought. But this alone could identify Christianity as just another pagan religion. Because the idea of God's becoming human or taking on human form and walking among us was a very common theme in Greek culture in Jesus' day. Or if it's just God becoming human, it could be a, a way to mix up Jesus as just another incarnation or an avatar of the Hindu god Vishnu. Many attempt to do this and claim that all religions are essentially the same and have all of these similar patterns to them. And that is why to avoid a false syncretism with other religions and to avoid reducing Christianity to a religion of pop psychology or just some kind of civil religion, we have to make sure that Christianity is vitally rooted in the Old Testament. It is absolutely vital for Christianity to stay Christian by being rooted in the Old Testament. People have said to me on a number of occasions that they appreciate how much I bring to light the Old Testament through the New Testament in my preaching. And the reason I do that is not simply because I'm interested in the Old Testament and think that there are interesting things in there, but it's because it is vital to understand the New Testament by understanding the Old Testament. If we don't understand the Old Testament, if we do not have a strong familiarity with the Old Testament, the New Testament becomes simply, well, what does that mean to you? What does that mean to you? We grab terms out of the New Testament and we add our own definitions to them rather than an Old Testament understanding definition to them and we can go into very wrong places. We end up reading into the Old Testament rather than reading out of the Old Testament. What does the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us mean to you? Frankly, I couldn't care less what it means to you. I want to know what does it mean in light of the Old Testament. And that is a question we should always be asking ourselves when we come to the New Testament and we come to questions that we don't don't understand, we should be asking ourselves, what does this mean in light of the old? When we do that, we will find that translating it, God moved into the neighborhood, though it gets across a certain concept at one level, it misses the deep, profound Old Testament connections, which make this line out of John, John 1.14, and protect this line 
from becoming a line that could be interpreted in a pagan way. To begin, we need to understand that the literal translation of the word made his home among us, the word made his dwelling among us, is that the word tabernacled among us, or tented. The word became a tent among us. The word tabernacled among us. And then connected with this, we then see the significance of the word tabernacling with us in the repeated use of the word glory. The word tabernacled among us, we've seen the glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. Once again, the word glory here and the fact that it's repeated is not just a word to give us a nice tribute to Jesus. It is significant to see how the word glory is connected in the Old Testament, particularly how the word glory in the Old Testament is connected with the tabernacle. When we put all of this together, we will see a fascinating connection between what's really happening in God's story that he is writing. You see, in the Old Testament, after God freed Moses and the Egyptians, or Moses and his people from the Egyptians, the people of Israel from the Egyptians, and they crossed as the Red Sea parted and they got into the desert, God instructed Moses and God instructed the Israelites, the people who had fled from the Egyptians, to build a portable tent or a tabernacle, as what it was called in the Old Testament, to be the central place of worship for God. Complete in this tabernacle was the Holy of Holies, the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was to be put. There was the inner and the outer courts. You had the men menorah, you had the shewbread, you had the altars of incense for burnt offerings. And this was the place where Israel was to come and to worship their God. It was the place where God and his people met. It was the place where God dwelt among his people. It was the tent of meeting. It is repeatedly described as the place where God manifested himself. When we read about the tabernacle in the Old Testament, we continue to hear about the Shekinah glory filling the place. Shekinah meaning Hebrew for the divine presence. The glory of God, the divine presence, filled the tabernacle, the place where people met with God and God met with people. We read this in Exodus. At the tabernacle entrance, this is God speaking, there I will meet with you and speak with you. I will meet the people of Israel there in the place made holy by my gracious presence. Yes, I will consecrate the tabernacle and the altar, and I will consecrate Aaron and his sons to serve me as priests. Then I will live among the people of Israel and be their God, and they will know that I am the Lord their God. Here in the tabernacle, I will live among the people. I will make my dwelling among the people, and there my glorious presence will be. 
When John writes his gospel, he's not writing without all of this in mind. The tabernacle was where God met and spoke and lived among his people. The tabernacle was the place of God's glorious divine presence. And now listen to what John does in John 1.14. In John 1.14, he's identifying Jesus as this tabernacle. John is saying that Jesus is now where God meets and lives among his people. John is saying that Jesus is the place where God's Shekinah glory dwells. That's why he repeats in John 1.14 glory twice. That is, it is in Jesus that we see the divine presence of God in his full glory. Therefore, Jesus is not just any divine being that's come to, from heaven to earth. The way many of the gods did. Jesus has no connection with, to Vishnu or any other power. Instead, what John is clearly doing is he is clearly associating Jesus as the same God as Yahweh who met Israel in the temple or in the tabernacle. That is who Jesus is. Jesus is the God of the tabernacle. The Hebrew God revealed in the Old Testament. Lack of understanding this is often missed by groups like the Jehovah Witnesses as well. Who just grab a verse here, grab a verse there and proof text their way around. And miss the deeper implications of this. That right here in John 1.14, John is clearly identifying Jesus with Yahweh. He's done that already earlier in the book. John 1, 1, he starts off by saying, the word was with God, the word was God, and all things were created through him. He begins his gospel by identifying Jesus with the God of Genesis 1. The same God who created everything in the beginning is the God we find in Jesus. And now just a few verses later, he says, and the same God who met Moses in the wilderness, the same God who made his presence known in the tabernacle is the God of Jesus. They're not random throwaway statements, but they are John making explicit claims of the link between the Old and the New Testament. Which is why Christians always have to be Old Testament people. Which is why a lack of Old Testament understanding often turns Christianity into something less than Christian. We see this throughout church history too. Groups and groups that tried to neglect the Old Testament and became just New Testament Christians without understanding the new in light of the old. And they continued to become offshoots and very unhealthy sects. The New Testament needs to be understood in light of the old. For us to understand who Jesus is, what the kingdom of God means, who God's people are. Everything from the beginning to the end, we need to understand what the New Testament is saying in light of the old. 
Now, as the author of Hebrew points out, the tabernacle was never meant to be permanent. That's why we don't have a tabernacle anymore today. For though it was portable, you could move it around, the tabernacle was extremely limited. It could only be at one place at one time. It required priests. It required the continual sacrifice of lambs, the continual pouring out of blood. It required ceremonies and coverings and laws and an exclusive race. In fact, the tabernacle was never meant to be the reality ever. As the writer of Hebrews says, the tent was merely illustrative. It was merely preparatory. By these regulations, the Holy Spirit revealed that the entrance to the most holy place was not freely open as long as the tabernacle and the system it represented was still in use. As long as it was still in use, the most holy place was not freely open to people. It had a big, huge curtain and a veil where God's full presence was manifested in the Holy of Holies. This is an illustration, this tabernacle, pointing to the present time. For the gifts and the sacrifices that the priests offer are not able to cleanse the consciences of people who bring of the people who bring them. Hebrews goes on to say that it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. All of this was illustrative. It was never the reality. The tabernacle was all preparation to prepare us to understand who God was when he came with Jesus Christ. John, like Hebrews, goes on to say in the beginning of his gospel that Jesus is the one the tabernacle was pointing to. The tabernacle was never meant to be an end in itself. The tabernacle was always meant to be a type of John the Baptist. The tabernacle was pointing to someone else. And now that Jesus had come, the old order had ended. And the new order had begun. This is why Paul, as well, was so emphatic that we don't go back to the tabernacle or the sacrificial system or the Jewish laws. Because in Jesus' coming, they had fulfilled their purpose. Why look at a photograph when you've got the real thing? Could you imagine if... Uh, my wife was away, and so I had a photograph of her, and to remind myself of her, I looked at the photograph, and then she came home, and she was standing right beside me, and she's like, here, I'm home, honey, and I'm like, yes, you sure are, and I just kept looking at the photograph, and then she'd take the photograph away and say, look, you got me, the real me right here, and I say, can I have that photograph back? That's what it's like to want to go back to the Old Testament. The Old Testament was preparatory. It's like when you're learning how to ride a bike. And they put those training wheels on. Well, you put training wheels on so you can begin to learn how to ride your bike. The training wheels are very good things. But the training wheels are to prepare you. Once you know how to ride your bike, you take the training wheels off. It'd be a pretty crazy person who had learned how to ride their bike proficiently now that they can go off-roading and down mountains and things like that that says, you know what, I just want to throw those training wheels back on. 
I'm like, man, you put those training wheels back on and you are going to be significantly hindered in your bike riding. You go back to the preparatory stuff and try to tack it on to Christianity, it's going to significantly hinder your walk with Christ. That's what Paul's saying. They're not bad things. The training wheels are not bad things. We understand their purpose. But when the reality comes, when we know how to ride the bike, there's no need for the training wheels. The tabernacle was there. It was preparatory. Now that the real thing has come, we no longer need the tabernacle. Now, under King Solomon's reign in the wilderness, or under King Solomon's reign, the, the wilderness tabernacle was built into a temple. After Solomon finished building the temple, which now took place of the tabernacle, we read this. When Solomon finished praying, fire flashed down from heaven and burned up the burnt offering and sacrifices. And what happens again? The glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple. The temple is now taking the place of the tabernacle. It's the place where God is going to meet with people. The glorious presence of God dwells there. The temple now has the role where God's Shekinah glory, his divine presence, dwelt with Israel. Now, it's interesting, and I won't get into it all here. There's significant debate in scholarly circles on whether the building of the temple was actually a good thing or not. And whether God wanted it or not. Because when we read about it, it appears that God reluctantly went along with the building of the temple. It appears that God would have preferred for it to have just remained a tabernacle until the coming of Christ. King David wanted to take the tabernacle and build it into a temple. One of the other dangers that come with that is it allows now the tabernacle, which was mainly looked after by the priests, that as soon as it became a temple, it got mixed up with the politics. And we all know the danger of mixing religion and politics a little bit. And so you've got a little bit of that that goes on there too. But when David comes and requests that he would like King David to build the temple, this is what God told David. And so it all depends on how you read this. This is what the Lord declared to David. You are not the one to build a house for me to live in. I declare that the Lord will build a house for you. The Lord is going to be the one to build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons. I will make his kingdom strong. He is the one who will build a house. He is the one who will build a temple for me. And I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my favor from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. That is Saul. I will confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time. And his throne will be secure forever. That's what God says to David. Earlier to that, uh, God even says to David, why do you need to build a, a, a temple for me? I've always been in the tabernacle. And so he kind of questions him on it as well. Now, David obviously understood those words to mean Solomon. That I, the Lord, will build a house for you. 
When you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up your descendants, one of your sons. I will make his kingdom strong, and he's going to be the one to build the temple. And so what David did is he brought a bunch of supplies and things like that so that when he died, Solomon could build this temple. The thing is, when you read the words, it doesn't appear that Solomon's the one Jesus is talking about. God certainly allowed and used the temple system to replace the tabernacle system. But it's important to realize that all Solomon was able to build was another illustration. He never built the real thing either. John is now going to, and this is going to be important for us to follow throughout the gospel, going to show us that the person who is the Lord's anointed son of David, who is going to build the temple and reign forever, is Jesus. In fact, the temple is mentioned in John 25 times, and it's a book of only 21 chapters. It is a major theme in the book of John. Almost every one of Jesus' speeches and actions happens at the temple. And every single one of his speeches and actions are going to show us that this is now fulfilled. Jesus is the son from David's kingly line who would build this temple and establish God's kingdom and sit securely on his throne forever. The true tabernacle, tent, the true temple where the Shekinah glory of the divine presence dwells is in Jesus Christ. This is what John is saying right at the beginning. The word became human flesh. And he became God's tabernacle or temple among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We have seen his glory, the Shekinah glory, the divine presence, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. This is why in our study of John, we are going to repeatedly see the temple emphasized. It's also why when we get to chapter 2, only the very next chapter of this book, John is going to tell the story of Jesus cleansing the temple. Now, some people have said, oh, this is weird. The, the other gospels refer to Jesus cleansing the temple way at the end of his ministry, and John puts it right at the very beginning. What, what's, what's going on? Well, part of what's going on is that the gospel writers are not nearly as concerned as we moderns are in chronology. They're writing much more from a theological perspective, to make theological points. Uh, they're all acknowledging that historically Jesus cleared the temple. But John puts it right at the beginning for theological reasons. It's to build the premise of the whole book. See, after he sets the stage, God became flesh, the word became flesh, human. He became the temple, the tabernacle among us. He now is the fulfillment of this whole temple tabernacle system. Then in chapter 2, what does Jesus do? He cleanses the temple. See, Jesus' cleansing the temple was not to make a statement that churches shouldn't have bake sales in their foyer. Once again, the reason we come up with those silly conclusions is because we don't know our Old Testament. 
So we read our New Testament and we say, okay, Jesus cleansed the temple. What does that mean? Um, we have no connection with the Old Testament. So somehow we think the church building's a temple, which it's not. And then we think something about, well, they cleansed it. And so people were buying and selling things. So we shouldn't sell cupcakes in the foyer. Um, I was raised in that kind of a, a tradition. Uh, a, a complete misreading. And it's a misreading because of a lack of Old Testament understanding. The main point in Jesus' cleansing the temple is he's saying, this system is over. It's done away with. Yes, there were immoral things that were going on. People were cheating one another with money and that. But if that's all Jesus was doing, he wouldn't have had the reaction against him that we see. See, we can't paint everybody in the first century with a black brush. That they're all evil. There were many reformed teachers and rabbis and Pharisees in Jesus' day. They knew that there was some corruption with the temple system. They know that there were people that were cheating and selling things kind of immorally. If that's all Jesus was saying, Jesus would have had allies with a number of other priests. Maybe they would have said, Jesus, you got to control your temper a little bit. Maybe flipping tables isn't the best way to do it. But certainly, they wouldn't have reacted the way they reacted. See, the way they reacted is when Jesus cleansed the temple, they wanted to kill him. Why would they want to kill somebody just for flipping some tables and saying, you guys are you're using money wrongly? It's because they understood that what Jesus was doing was saying, this is over. Imagine somebody marching in and, and the faith and the religion that you've practiced all of your life comes in and says your entire religious system, your entire temple and ceremonies and the whole way that you go about your religion is done. Who the heck are you? And then he says the reason it's done is because I'm the fulfillment of it all. You don't need this stuff anymore. That's why when Jesus did this, the priest came up to him and says, by what authority do you have to do this? And Jesus says something in kind of the riddle way that Jesus says it. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And they're first off thinking, are you a terrorist? You're going to destroy the temple? That's what he gets accused of later on before his crucifixion. This guy says he's going to destroy the temple. And then they challenge him and say, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. You're going to destroy this thing and raise it in three days? And then John writes this. But when Jesus said, this temple, he meant his own body. After Jesus was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered he had said this. And they believed both the scripture and what Jesus had said. John, this is already just in chapter 2, John again is clearly making the identification that Jesus is coming and saying, I am the one who's now the temple. I'm the tabernacle, I'm the temple, I'm dwelling among you. And what that was, it was just an illustration. I am the reality. And so if I'm the reality and the reality has now come, you no longer need the illustration. And so he comes in and he wipes it away. We no longer need this. It's over. It's done with. The reality has come. And when he gets challenged on it and says, How are you, by what authority are you going to prove that you are the one who is the fulfillment of this? Jesus says, you just wait until my resurrection. 
My resurrection will be proof that this is done. No more sacrifices are needed. I became the perfect sacrifice. No more priests are needed because I became the perfect priest. It's done away with. No more lambs are needed because I became the perfect lamb. Jesus was associating himself with the temple, the tabernacle, claiming to be the temple and the tabernacle. And that meant that Jesus was claiming to be the one through whom God would now speak. Jesus was claiming to be the one through whom God would now forgive. Jesus was claiming to be the one through whom God would now live among his people. That's a crazy statement. That kind of authority, Jesus is saying, is all in him. Jesus is where you find the divine presence, the Shekinah glory of God. And if this is true, no religious system is necessary anymore. All the other religious systems that have been false are proven to be false by the fulfillment of Christ. The one religious system that was proven to be true proves to be true only as an illustration, not as a reality. And now that it's fulfilled its purpose, it's no longer needed. The temple comes up again in John chapter 4 with the woman at the well. When the woman asks Jesus, which temple do we worship at? Do we worship at the temple over here, or do we worship at the temple over here? And Jesus, claiming to be the Messiah to this woman, says a time is coming when it's no longer going to matter. This temple or that temple or this place and all of that. The temples are no longer needed because I have come. He had come to put an end to the temple. We're going to see this over and over in the book of John, the temple coming up again and again, and every single time the temple coming up, Jesus saying that he's the fulfillment of it. It's all setting the stage right here from John 1.14 when it says Jesus tabernacled among us. It's interesting that John 1.14 so clearly upholds just the one verse, the fact that Jesus was fully God and fully human. Starts off that Jesus or the word became flesh, human. And we talked last week about how to be human means to be embodied, to be flesh. He truly was human. But then the very next words talk about that he is the temple in which the Shekinah glory shines, the divine presence is, that he is the divine one, Yahweh, from the temple in the Old Testament. He's fully God, he's fully human. Jesus was identifying himself as Yahweh. He was not claiming to be a mere prophet like Jeremiah or Isaiah. He was not claiming to be a self-fulfillment therapist. Jesus was not claiming to be another pagan demigod like Hercules. He wasn't claiming to be another avatar of Vishnu. Jesus did not come out of nowhere and just appear on the scene suddenly. Jesus came out of the historical people Israel and identified himself with Israel's God, 
who showed his divine presence in picture form in the tabernacle and now in reality in Jesus Christ. Jesus is God's Shekinah glory. Jesus is God's divine presence. And it's no wonder if you don't believe this, particularly in the culture in which Jesus said all this and did all this, the Jewish people picked up stones and wanted to stone him for blasphemy. You are claiming to be what our entire religious system is all about to the point where you are claiming that we no longer need any of this. The word became human, flesh, and became God's tabernacle or temple among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen his glory, the Shekinah glory, the divine presence of the Father's one and only Son. And so this raises some questions. Or it points us in some directions. And that is, if Jesus is the fulfillment of the tabernacle temple, if, if in Jesus we discover the one true God, Yahweh, if this is the one whom God has proven himself in, if Jesus is the one whom God loves and meets and speaks and lives and forgives his people, then we acknowledge that we do not worship any other gods. We do not worship and we do not pray to saints or to Mary. We do not blend Jesus with any other deity. We do not have to carry out religious rituals and ceremonies for spiritual blessings. We don't believe in superstition and good luck charms. We don't associate God's presence with wood and brick and stone. We don't say things like the church building is the house of God. Jesus is the house of God. And even though we don't necessarily intend what we say, we have to be careful we're not sloppy with language. We don't have to go on pilgrimages to find God. Another thing about being sloppy with language, I refuse to call Palestine the Holy Land. Because there's nothing more holy about Palestine than about Canada. Or anywhere else. And I know sometimes we just use it to you know, talk about a certain location, that, but we've got to be careful with words. The land of Israel is not any more holy than my backyard. The Jordan River is not any more holy than the water that comes out of my tap. That's not saying that I'm degrading the land or the water in Palestine. What I'm saying is I'm upgrading the land in my backyard and my tap because Jesus has come and he's sanctified it all. We don't go on pilgrimage to find holy places. The Jewish temple does not need to be rebuilt to fulfill Old Testament prophecy because that would be to go backwards. Jesus has fulfilled 
everything the temple and the tabernacle was meant to do. Jesus has fulfilled all of that prophecy. No building or system can supersede or even come alongside of the finished work of Jesus Christ. He's accomplished it. And it is finished, as he said, on the cross. There is no one way for salvation for some people and another way of salvation for other people. There is only one way of salvation, and that's through God's tabernacle, Jesus Christ. He is the one where the divine presence of God dwells. And those who enter become part of Jesus' body. And here's where it gets very interesting. When we become part of Jesus' body, guess what else we become? We become the temple. Because we now are part of Jesus. The church, not the building. The people become the place where the divine presence, the Shekinah glory of God dwells on earth. Jesus now has his full presence dwell among us. And as church, we have discovered God's forgiveness in the temple of Jesus Christ. Therefore, God has now made us his body, Christ's body, Christ's temple, to go out and to offer love and forgiveness to the rest of the world so that they can find the presence of God. It's in Christ alone. The temple, the tabernacle, which could only be in one place, was now fulfilled in Jesus Christ, who now when he gave his spirit to the church, guess what? The temple, the tabernacle, the fulfillment of it in Jesus Christ is everywhere the church is now. His presence fills the ends of the earth as his people go out as the temple of Jesus Christ, the tabernacle of Jesus Christ, bringing his Shekinah glory, his presence to those who do not know God. If you try to find hope and life and purpose and forgiveness, through willpower or religion or buildings or methods or rituals or customs or culture or temples, you will fail as miserably as Nancy and I putting up a tent. And so it's time to throw away the tents. It's time to throw away the tents just as Jesus came to throw away the temple. Jesus is here, there's no more need for the tent. And Jesus is the only tent that will never leak, it will never flood, and it will never fall over. If there's one tent that I want to abide in, to be in, it's the tent of Jesus, the true tabernacle, the true temple. The very one in whom the divine presence dwells in reality. And then who calls me to join him in becoming part of that tabernacle. 
becoming part of that tabernacle to be his people. To shine his glory to the world. Christ became human flesh. And became God's tabernacle among us. Christ was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. We've seen Christ's glory, the Shekinah glory, the divine presence of the Father's one and only Son, Jesus Christ. I told you that with John we'd be soaring with the eagles. This is just the prologue of John. And it just keeps getting better and better. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for sending your word. That he came to us and became human. Lived among us and became the true tabernacle. We thank you so much, Lord, because as we know in other stories in the Bible, because of what Jesus did, that temple veil tore that separated us from the holy of holies, the place where your divine presence was. And that temple veil tore because now in Jesus, the true tabernacle, we have in Jesus direct access to you. We need no other mediator other than Jesus. And we can come right into your presence. And so, Lord, we can do nothing but worship you and thank you for forgiving our sins and restoring us to a right relationship with God so that we could know you and experience life to the full. Amen.